You're listening to Toby Haydock's Who's Round, but hopefully not as I record this, because that means you're in my house. I've been here before, uh, uh, we're upstairs in a library, it's a bit noisy, but uh, it's alright, it's too cold outside, um, and I have been joined by somebody who has very kindly offered to speak to me, so I'm going to ask her to tell me who she is and why I'm talking to her about Doctor Who. My name's Anne Fragata, I worked at the BBC from 1967 to 2002. During that time, I progressed from being an assistant floor manager in drama serials to being head of production for BBC Films, so... I covered quite a lot of interesting jobs in order to make that progression from one to the other. All drama. Um, And I worked on Doctor Who more than once. Um, The first programme I ever worked on was a Doctor Who on which I simply trailed behind Gareth Gwenlan, the assistant floor manager, to learn all about how television worked, um, because I had no television experience, I had three years' experience of working in the theatre. And the one thing I remember Gareth saying, which I took on board and I think is actually a very useful comment on television and very true, compared with theatre, certainly the way theatre was then and I imagine is now, is that he said television is a very equable industry and anybody is entitled to express their opinion. So if you're in rehearsal and you have something you want to say, then you can find the right opportunity and you can say it. Whereas in the theatre, you wouldn't dream of discussing with the director of a play in any way at all how the direction was going, what the actors were doing, you wouldn't question their decisions. Um, And I have always found that to be true, actually, that it is a very collaborative process, with some people more than others, but generally speaking, um, everybody wants the final product to be as good as it can be, and they believe that their contribution is part of the success of the programme. So that was my first introduction to television. Um, I then did a television... I did a television... uh, Sorry, I I worked on a Doctor Who as an assistant floor manager by myself, with Julia Smith as the director, who has been relevant at various points during my career. Um, And the overall impression I have of that one was that... I don't remember anything about the filming but the studios in particular were really quite I wouldn't say disorganised exactly but clearly there were lots of ways where people could continue to change their minds and go for something better Um, and I found that quite surprising I think I thought like the theatre that once you got to the studio what you were recording in front of a camera was going to be a a final performance as you would do it in front of an audience in the theatre. And it turned out not to be quite the case. So you'd you'd shadowed Gareth Gwendolyn on, we think it was The Underwater Menace for Julia Smith, uh, and then 
it was only literally two stories later you're actually doing the job that he was doing, yes. which is assistant floor managing for, yes. for John Davis. Yes. So I've got the two directors the wrong way around. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it was yeah, John yes. Davis and the Macrotera. Yes. Yeah. No, but John Davis was definitely not disorganised. He was incredibly organised as a director and unfailingly polite to everybody and, and very um, clear, reasonable. Um, an enjoyable experience working with him actually, it was lovely um, so yes it it, um, it was quite soon afterwards and I don't think that the BBC believed in official training at the assistant floor manager level you trailed somebody you, you picked up the mechanics of how it works, what you needed to do in the way of paperwork and, and, and so on to make sure that things turned up at the right place at the right time and then you asked the production manager if you needed any support you weren't quite sure what was going on, they were there to make sure that you did what you were meant to do as well as giving the director what they wanted um, I don't remember having any problems with it at all it seemed very straightforward one of the things about television which is different from the theatre, which I've noticed with lots of people coming through, is that you get people who come in from the theatre who want everything ready in a studio from the very first scene to the last. Whereas in a studio, when you're recording, and it may well be out of order, you've got plenty of time to set the stuff and get it ready for the end scenes in the recording order while you're still working on the beginning scenes or the middle scenes. So, in many ways, the pressure's less um, than it would be um, in the theatre the, the, the only thing that I think puts the pressure up is that if you've got a very difficult technical show and you're tight on rehearsals after you've been through all the technical rehearsals and you've done run-throughs then if something goes wrong during the recording you may not have had sufficient time to do it but actually that can happen in the theatre too. So. But then you sort of, you vanish from Doctor Who between sort of 1967 and, and, and the early 1980s. Yes. So, and, and when you come back, you're a production. Yeah, so what, what did you do? And, and did you, did you, were you able to choose programmes or did you specialise in particular programmes or was it just coincidence that you never darkened Doctor Who's door for, for 15 years? Well, if you, uh, you're aware that the BBC drama department was divided into three parts... Um, at some stage during, I think, 2000 and 1968, I was asked to go and do a, a series, and it was called The Shadow of the Tower. And it was produced by Jordan Lawrence, and Anthea Brown-Wilkinson and Prue Fitzgerald were the two support script editors on it. And it was about the reign of Henry VII and the pretenders to the throne. And they wanted somebody who had some historical knowledge on the programme. So I went off and there were either 10 or 13 episodes all about Henry's um, struggles in, because he defeated Richard on the battle, uh, you know, the battle of, at the Battle of Bosworth. Bosworth yeah. yeah. Um, there were a lot of pretenders to the throne, um, people who cropped up and pretended to be the princes in the tower and so on. It was about his struggles to hang on to his throne and his ability to save up a big war chest and, and establish the Tudor dynasty, um, which was fun to do um, because it was, I found it interesting, but also because we got to film at the Tower of London, which was nice, which is, I filmed at the London, Tower of London twice. However, I ended up, therefore, in drama series, um, and from there, they hung on to me, and I'm not quite sure why, um, and I did an awful lot of softlies. Was softly a good, was an enjoyable show to work on, then? Softly was very hard work, um, but it was enjoyable, yes. Um, the turnaround meant that you did a studio every week, 
So you did a, a 50 minute show every week. So out of your seven days a week, two days were in the studio and one day was off. So that left you four days during which you had to rehearse and fit in all the filming inserts. So the scheduling was pretty um, important and was done by, for a long time, Geraint Morris, who worked as Leonard Lewis's assistant. He yeah. did all the scheduling. And he was a very good, as it were, line producer for all the production managers that, that came on. Um, and I can't remember what kind of run-up you got. I think must have been, probably did one in every three. So you had to find locations, get permissions, because production managers did that then, as well as running studios. Um, and if you couldn't find the locations you wanted, you really did run into a problem. However, by and large, the actors all knew what they were doing. The, the crews were always people who'd done it before, and it did work like clockwork. And as I said, one year I did 26, so it's you know, an awful lot. I don't know how I fitted 26 in, I don't know. It would sound like one a fortnight, but I know I did 26 shows one year. Um, no time to think. No leave. No. No. As, as is typical with the BBC, I crewed an awful lot of, of leave. Um, and then I did... A, another historical program called The Fall of Eagles. Yes. Um, and on both of those programs, we did, for I think the first time ever in television, whole 50 minutes on film. It was a softly, which was all on film that I did, which Leonard Lewis directed, about which I remember very little, except it was all set in the strawberry fields in Kent. And it was a wonderful summer, so we had lots of strawberries. Um, and episode eight of Fall of Eagles, which was the one um, set in Russia and about the secret police, was starring Michael Brandt, was all on film. The whole thing was on film, uh, which was really unusual and interesting. Um, and from there, with various other possible things in between, I did the first series of Survivors. Mm. And the first series of Survivors was the first time the BBC ever made a programme entirely on video, including doing all the locations on video. Um, which was a bit of a... Well, it was a logistical exercise, working out how to take 1970s OB vehicles on location. Um, and we started in January, and the weather was horrible. And I well remember one day going round from where we were filming to where all the technical vehicles were stored. And one of the cameramen had decided his camera wasn't working. We had a spare. And he put a big tarpaulin out on the ground and he'd taken it to pieces. And there were all these bits of camera lying in every direction, you know, like a, something like six foot by three, covered in bits of camera, as he tried to repair them all. <laughs> I know, you wouldn't see that now. Um, you'd send to London for another one. <laughs> Well, it was quite a. It was quite, Survivors was quite a, uh, a quite a troubled genesis in that um, Terence Dudley wanted to make a different series from the one Terry Nation envisaged, and mm. Carolyn Seymour now admits that she was hard work and wasn't in a particularly good place. So was it was it quite a struggle to put together from where you were, or was were you not party to any of that? Um, the relationship between Terry Nation and Terry Terry Nation and Terry Dudley was um, we were all aware of it. But it was handled at a level that didn't actually infect the production. The production itself um, was actually quite difficult because Terry wasn't the easiest producer to work for. Um, not particularly um, supportive, liked to 
tell people what to do and he wanted it to happen the way he had asked them to make it happen, which sometimes wasn't practical. However, it was staffed with the most amazingly talented people and some really interesting directors. Um, Pat Roberts directed the first episode. Yes, I was the... No, I think my husband was the floor manager on the first one. I can't remember now. No, I was the floor manager on the first one. one, And he was the assistant floor manager, that's right. We had to do the famous nude shower scene. Yeah. About which there's a story which I probably shouldn't repeat. Um, (laughs) Well, anyway. Um, Caroline Seymour was actually, from our point of view, from the production manager's staff's point of view, fine. She was one of those actresses that um, didn't suffer fools and, and... wanted to do things properly but I think that's a sign of a very good professional and I admire that in people um, and, and by and large we we all got on in fact we did all get on extremely well we, the, the cast were a joy to work with um, the two teams because there was Pendant Roberts and Gerald Blake who directed yeah. the other half and there was myself and Chris on one half and Michael Bartley and I think Michael Morris on the other half no Derek Nelson on the other half um, the problems we had really were, were not to do with the people but to do with the, the fact that it was a groundbreaking venture taking outside broadcast vehicles in onto location because the vehicles were so big the cameras were so big the cable runs were enormous the OB lights were totally really inappropriate we had a big crew and we had a lot of very heavy equipment and we had long cable runs because we had to do things in, in fields away from human habitation because the characters in the scripts were trying to keep away from other humans. Yeah. So, I mean, I well remember we found one very good location somewhere in the wilds of Herefordshire and I was taking the OB crew to the location and I said, follow me because we had lots of locations to fit in every day so we all set off driving in this massive convoy and after a while I realised I was going around the hill I'd been round before with all this unit behind me and some kindly farmer popped his head out over a gate and said are we lost having presumably watched this massive caravan making its way through all his land and pointed us in the right direction Um, it was a bad winter that winter by the time we got to the summer, though, it was 1975, it was that brilliantly hot summer, and we had a location where we could spend most of the summer, which was called Hampton Court, which was a, an empty, really crumbling apart old stately home, which is now a very, very expensive hotel. Um, and we spent the summer there, and we had a wonderful time, just filming, enjoying the summer. Um, and everybody, I think, benefited. Even the OB unit managed to dry out their cameras. I've got a picture somewhere of them in, in the uh, ward garden there where they used to grow vegetables. Uh, but but you, you, you sort of moved up the ranks, didn't you? you I stayed your... as, a, as, a, as a floor manager, production manager from 1969 to 1979. And then I had a baby. And I came back and did a bit, did some angels with my baby. And then I had another baby. And then in 1984, I went to radio drama for a year, and my daughter was eight months old. Um, and then I came back, and I applied to... I did a bit of um, assistant production executiving on a programme that... Oh, I think Geraint Morris produced. It was a programme about a show jumper. It's just six episodes about a girl who was a show jumper. 
Um, and, and all the business with doubles and rehearsing her on horses and trying to get it right was hard work. Um, and, and I think probably when you're faced with so many technical difficulties, unless you've got an absolutely brilliant script, in some ways working on the technical problems overtakes what you're trying to put into the drama. And sure. It becomes a logistical exercise rather than a creative exercise. Then I went to work as a producer on EastEnders, Julia Smith again. Um, not a very happy experience because she'd only just started the programme she really didn't want anyone else producing it but she needed a holiday so I was really a holiday cover and then when I came back it was quite clear that it was not going to become a permanent relationship so I left that and I was a production executive for a while and that was the time when I worked on the next series of Doctor Who yeah. but um, I don't remember firsting any Doctor Who's. Are you going to tell me I did and well, I've forgotten? Because it's quite possible. Yeah, during all that Richard Todd rings about Yeah, during that melee, you mm. did. You did you, you, you did four episodes with Richard Todd mm. in a jungle, in a studio. In direct, a jungle? Directed by Peter Grimwade. There's a Peter massive Grimwade. giant snake. Uh, Mary Morris playing a blind character. This isn't the one with the bats, no. Oh, no, that was... The bats. That's later. Uh, oh, the bats would be... With Richard Briers. Uh, yeah, the, the the bats is Sylvester McCoy's first yes. story, mm. Time in Irani. Mm. Um, so yeah, because you yeah you did the whole of the Sylvester whole of McCoy's Sylvester McCoy first yeah. season. Yes. Um, no, the Richard Todd one is Peter Davison. Oh, right. uh, that is nineteen eighty one. Okay, uh, I must have done that in between two children and forgotten yeah, about him. Yeah, so uh, quite likely. Yeah. You probably had your mind on other things. Possibly, I did angels at the same time. Yeah, well, I mean, a wide discussion. Then I suppose that jumps off and says, well, what, what about directors? Who you know, you've mentioned a number of directors mm. that all worked on Doctor Who, like Pennant Roberts, Gerald Blake, um, Peter Grimwade. Who who were the? Do you think there's a difference between the directors who were good to work with and the ones who produced the best work, or? Do you not have a view of that because actually all of your opinion of a director is, is based on you know, how hard or easy they made your job? No, well, I think my, my opinion of a director will ultimately be based on the quality of the product. Um, it's nice when people are nice to work with. It's important to wait until you've done a whole show with somebody before you come to any conclusions. You can, you can decide that somebody's chaotic in their planning, they don't manage rehearsals or act as well, and their studios look a mess, and then when you watch it cut together, you think, oh, actually, they didn't know what they were doing after all. They just had a, a method which I didn't understand at the time. Um, so, ultimately, I think that the directors I've worked with that I've admired most are probably not people who worked on Doctor Who. You know, Jimmy McTaggart was one of them. Yeah. Jimmy Catherine Jones was another... I did Portrait of a Lady, which was the second classic serial the BBC ever made in colour with um, uh, Richard Chamberlain. Um, and uh, Michael Lindsay Hogg. I did a, a production of The Seagull that David Jones produced with him, and he was, you know, his work was quality. Um, Bill Hayes was an interesting person to work with, actually. Very interesting. But he was very he was very good with his actors, quite lazy, but at the same time he got out of it what he really wanted. Because it's funny because Grimwave is one, for example, who all the actors who worked with him say, Oh, he was he was mm. hard, he didn't understand us as actors. Mm. But actually the shooting of his stuff mm. compared to the other directors around him is it's it is interesting. Incredible. And it's pacier mm. and it has a more 
you know, it's directed. It is directed mm. like a film, in, as mm. far as you can in a television studio. I don't remember having any issues about working with Peter Grimwood, and I do remember Richard Todd very clearly because we were obviously. Um, Curious, I suppose, to know how he would cope with doing the Doctor Who, considering his history and his his, you know, his film parts and so on. Um, and he was utterly professional and well prepared, well rehearsed, knew his lines, and took it completely seriously, as as you would expect any, anyone to do. And that was nice. It's a pleasure. Well, and Grimway famously had a very difficult relationship with John Nathan Turner which leads us I guess onto your first season as you know with that, that McCoy first season this is towards the end of Doctor Who's time what turned out to be the last sort of gasp of classic Doctor Who and you're working for for the man who who, who oversaw it in its final years and he's quite a he's quite a divisive figure John so yeah yeah there are some who who say that Doctor Who would have been cancelled a lot earlier if it wasn't for his doggedness and the fact that he kept he, kept, he was he was loved the show so much. Some say he loved the publicity that surrounded the show too much and involved himself with conventions and fandom and got too close to fandom in a way that was detrimental to the programme. I don't think that's the case at all. I, I think that supporting the fan base is, is um, important with a show like that. Um, and I don't really see how it can be detrimental to the programme unless it meant that he neglected working on the programme, and that was definitely not the case. My personal... Um, belief is that John worked very, very hard to keep the programme on air. I think you're quite right. And I think he did that because he identified it very... He identified with it very closely, but he also never worked on other ideas. He didn't have other writers writing alternative series for him. He didn't discuss alternative series with heads of departments, so that if Doctor Who folded, and indeed when it did, he was out of a job. And I think that that would have seriously compromised his lifestyle. You know, um, financially he would have found it very difficult to get another job. Um, so that's what I think drove him, really. What John did do, um, and he fought very hard for, was he wanted the quality the integrity of the programme to be as good as it could be. And he would fight for um, extra um, design money from the budget. He would look for more innovative ideas, creative ideas. He would insist on the visual effects being as good as they could be. He worked hard, I think, on Sylvester McCoy and Sophie's um, look. You know, there were lots and lots of discussions about the clothes he would wear, that she would wear, and how that would work. Um, and I think within his abilities, and I would, I would suggest that, that John wasn't, because he'd been a production manager beforehand, he wasn't the kind of person who was a naturally creative producer in terms of lots of different ideas for television. Doctor Who really suited his slightly camp lifestyle. You know, he loved all that dressing up. He enjoyed making something that was... A fantasy in many ways. If you'd asked him to produce EastEnders, he wouldn't have known what to do with it. So, you know, he, he, he in many ways was the right person to do that show. Yes, I remember lots of conversations about Molly Langford's costumes, actually. 
must have been another series there. That must have been the Richard Todd one, surely. No, no, that was, Sil- was that Sylvester, Sylvester McCoy? McCoy's first year. It was, was him the... and Bonnie Langford. And, then... and Bonnie left and made way for Sophie. Sophie, at the end. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. So yeah, you did that one. The first one was Time and the Rani, which is the Cato Morrow um, in a quarry directed by Andrew Morgan. And the next one... No, that was Andrew Morgan, was yeah, it? Yeah, Goodness. which is first Doctor Who. OK. Uh, and then the next one was directed by Nicholas Mallet, and that was the one with um, mm. uh, Richard Briers, mm. set in yes. a tower block. Yes, and, um, yes. There was one of them in which the kind of catchword was hungry. There was something yes, that, was that was being yes. fed in a... Yeah, it was Richard, Richard. Briers da- yes. da- downstairs under, yes. in a basement. Yes. Who, who, who then gets... Killed and taken over by this mm. hungry creature, who gives mm. a, a, an eccentric performance. <laughs> yes, but, but like you see, I think that there again, you go back to what John's take on Doctor Who was, and he cast. He was the person who cast the leading characters. It was never the directors. It was part of John's vision for the program that he wanted people who would bring an audience to each of the series. And he, he cast it accordingly, he cast yeah. it up market. He, yeah, he, the, the, the calibre goes quite deep in the credits. Of, yes. Of, of, I mean, the next one, the, the one set in Butlins, you know, you've got... Oh, I loved that one, that was Don, such fun. Don Henderson, Ken yes. Dodd, Stubby K, yes. Richard Davis, yes. you know, these are all the people. Ken Dodd, yes. Ken Dodd. <laughs> we were a bit concerned. Um, I think with some justification, and I seem to remember, I have this, as you know, not very good memory, that... It was quite tricky achieving what we wanted to do with him. We did quite a few takes, but we got there in the end. It was his first, you know, mm. dramatic role for the yeah. BBC. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, good publicity again, you see. John was always good on publicity, always. I think it's easy to knock him, but I think it's, it actually is hard to think of somebody who would have brought more to Doctor Who at that stage. You know, with, if you think of the climate in the middle of the 80s and what other drama was going on, then you think... Doctor Who, I'm sure, had been on everybody's let's cross it off list for a long time because, first of all, they were half hours. It was a very unpopular length. Secondly, they went out on Saturdays at a funny time and nobody really knew whether that slot was going to hold up or not. Um, There were debates about whether even drama should be there at all. And under the circumstances, what he did was achieve something which worked for audiences of lots of you know, big demographic, um, interesting to look at, a bit scary. We did quite Good a clever, actors. quite a clever thing with that, that because that three-parter in Butlins was a, he basically took the studio and location from a six-parter and made mm. two three-parters instead. Mm. So you had that one, which was all location, mm. and then the next one, which was Dragonfire. All in the studio. Yeah. So in fact, you get two stories for the price of one. Was the Dragon Father one with the massive sets? Yeah. With masses of dry ice pouring down yeah. it, and oh, that was difficult. That was difficult because there was virtually no money left to do that, and those sets cost a fortune. And that was that was one of the more difficult ones. I remember lots of meetings about that as to how we could actually achieve what was required for the available money. We had a very clever designer called John Asbridge and he really pulled out the stops for that and it was really, really good. I'd worked with him before on a programme, that's what I did in the late 70s, a programme called My Son, My Son with Michael Williams, which was a novel. And he was one of the assistants on that. So that's where we first met. But that particular Doctor Who was... I think probably the straw that broke the camel's back on that particular series because when we'd finished at the end of the financial year I had to go and see Mark Chivas 
and he said that I was um, either the only production manager who'd overspent on Doctor Who ever, or I was the only one in that particular year who'd overspent on the series I'd been looking after. And he was not very pleased. And my, apart from apologising, my thoughts about that were it was quite difficult to control um, a programme when you were budgeting for the first few episodes when you hadn't got the scripts for the last few, you know, if it was a group of different three or four parties. It was equally difficult with a producer with ambition who wanted to cast at a a reasonable level and he wanted um, it to look on the screen as as if it, it had it had achieved what the scripts required in terms of design and effects but it was even more difficult than that when you analysed your costs at the end of financial year and certain departments only posted their costs at the end of the financial year so you didn't know what you'd spent in advance you couldn't say at the end of the first three how much I spent on transport they'd say we'll tell you next March which didn't really help very much um and, of course, since then, the whole costing system has been overhauled. Not because of what I said, but because everybody was facing similar problems. And even if I'd been the only person in series who had not managed to achieve their brief, I'm sure there were people in other departments who'd struggled with the same issues. Not even drama programmes, other departments altogether. Um, that's where John Burke comes in. Do you want to hear the John Burke story? Go on, then. I'll tell you the John Burke story. Um, it actually came from Linda Agron, who produced London's Burning. And she was in... George Faber's office when I looked after George Faber's screenplay series in the early 90s. She, through her independent company, were producing a one-off film for George. And she told us this story. She said that um, London Weekend had asked her to develop uh, a popular early evening series. And she'd come up with a number of formats. One of which was for London's Burning. And she'd been asked to go and see John and talk to him about them. So she duly produced the kind of treatments and so on for him and went off to see him and I think there were three or four possible options. And he discussed them all with her and then he said, without saying whether he had a preference, which one would she recommend that they commissioned? And he, she said, London's burning. And he said can you tell me why out of these four that one particularly is the one that you would choose and she said well I could come up with a lot of reasons why you know it fits various um, requirements for that slot but quite a lot of those requirements would apply to the others and so on and she said in the end John I think it comes down to um you know, that's, that's just my choice, that's the one. And he said, I can't accept that. He said, there has to be a logical reason why that was your choice. I want you to go away and write me a paper and list the, all the reasons why all of them might be good and, and finally, against the London burning list, what it is that makes that one the one. And she said, I can't do that. She said, because what it actually comes down to is instinct. And if you work in the industry and you've been there a long time and you've produced successful programmes, you have a nose for what is going to work. And he didn't understand. He could not understand what she was saying. And 
in the end he trusted her, she went away and the rest is history, you know. But I think that's a really good example of how some people in the industry look at things from a very um, um, calculating um, investment return. He wanted to quantify. He wanted it to be quantified, and it's, this is this is the, one of the things that has bedeviled the industry from that time onwards. That that audience figures, which are one of the ways of looking at returns, have become something which are really important. And the, the problem with that is that you then don't take so many risks, and you don't therefore um, commission so many slightly questionable talents. You don't put so much into some form of development. You end up with programmes that uh, are similar to each other, slightly more bland perhaps, or, or whatever you might feel about current offerings, of which there are some really good ones and some not so good ones. Um, there's definitely, I think, a lack of risk in the industry now. If for nothing else, if you're trying to sell an idea, the number of um, people you have to sell it to in terms of the commissioning process is huge. You have to go through, you know, script executives, commissioning editors, executive producers, and so on and so forth. Um, whereas in the good old best days of television in the 70s, you went in and saw the head of department and said, I want to make this programme. And he said, commission a few scripts, and if he liked the scripts, he then went to see the controller of BBC One at the regular office meetings, which were held every however many months. And quite often, he'd take a few ideas in and he would say, you know, I trust you that they're going to be what we want, and they get commissioned. It was a simple process. Now, I realise things have to change, and I realise that couldn't happen now, but I think what we've done, in, in a sense, is the, the baby slightly disappeared with the bathwater. Um, and the, the industry, although in some ways it's very strong, has probably lost out as well. And what about you? What are you up to now? Well, I finished doing production managing and went into being a production executive. The last programme I did as a production executive was called Sleepers. Yes, with uh, Warren Clark and Nigel Havers, written by John Fredericton. Flanagan and yes. Andrew McCullough. That's right. And didn't it get the best, something like the best audience appreciation feedback that the industry... That the yeah, it was a truly had. wonderful programme, and I've watched it quite recently, and it's still just as good as it ever was. It's a really, really clever idea, and it was beautifully executed by Geoffrey Sachs. Um, that was some... Um, who directed the Paul McGann Doctor Who movie that was yes, on in the States. Yes, yeah. um, So after that, I became... I can't remember how I became now. Well, I went to work for George Faber, which was actually even more interesting because George had moved from drama plays and he brought with him a series called Screenplay and we did a massive number of single films all over the place. We did them in the West Indies, we did them in America, we did them in Thailand, we did them in Switzerland, we did all sorts of things that you could never get away with now. Never, never, never. Um, and if you looked at the list of things that George produced between about 2001 and 2003, you'd be amazed by the risk, the quality, the people that... I mean, Paul Pavlikovsky, for example, the film director, was one of the people that we employed. Um, Antonia Bird was another. And there were lots of other people who were just really waiting to go to the top of their game. Um, Roger Michel, you know. Um, and then I went and became a head of production for drama series... Um, 
and I was headhunted by Nick Elliott when he came from, well not headhunted, but it was suggested to Nick Elliott who couldn't quite settle on who he wanted that he should interview me when he came from ITV and he got for me the job so I did that then he went back to ITV so I stayed there with Chris Parr and Joe Wright and then I decided three heads of production in three years was really rather too many so I asked if I could go and work for Tessa Ross who had set up the independent commissioning bit of the BBC so I did that for three years and then I discovered that BBC Films were short of a production executive and thought it would be a good experience to move sideways. That was about the time Tessa went to Channel 4, 1999, something like that. Um, so I went to BBC Films and the head of production left after I'd been there quite a short time, so I took over the job temporarily for 18 months and then I'd got to retirement age. The BBC kept me on for a little bit and then said, actually, we want someone who can commit for the long term. So I left and then I did freelance work. I worked as a co-producer, post-producer on The Life and Death of Peter Sellers for Company Pictures. Um, well, I'd always kept in touch with George ever since he'd gone and set Company Pictures up, which was about 1998. Um, and I made a short film. I worked on Glastonbury, Julian Temple's documentary about Glastonbury of, as a result of a suggestion by BBC Films who wanted an extra person on it because the post-production was so horrendous. It was all archive footage from early Super 8 to NTSC. You know, it was just every format you can imagine in it. Um, and then nothing turned up. And I had to then turn down a film and then I decided I was going to go back to academic life. So I applied to Queen Mary College where I did my undergraduate degree to do a Masters in Islam in the West, which I did over two years, which I graduated from last year. And now I'm looking to pursue my interest in the relationship between the West and the Islamic world by doing a PhD. Uh, uh, in the current climate, a very, very fertile area of research, I would imagine. Very, but I am looking, I'm afraid, at the um, 17th century, but still. I'm looking at the age of exploration, when suddenly, from being a small island off the north coast of Europe, we became a country with contacts all around the world and about our relationship with the Islamic world, about which nobody seems to know very much, be interested in, be aware of even. You know, the, our biggest trading partner in the 17th century was the Ottoman Empire. Nobody knows much about the Ottoman Empire. So I, th I think there's a small gap I might fill. And of course, one of the things I have at the back of my mind is that one day I'll do more film work and it will relate to disseminating knowledge about areas in history that we don't really have a very clear idea about. For example, there are a lot of unsung heroes in British history. We all know about the Tudors and the Victorians because they're very easy to identify with on screen. But there are an awful lot of people we don't know about who are just as interesting, if not more so. So I think there's lots of opportunities there. My husband and I have a film company. Oh, no. Media company uh, in which our daughter works, so we've got a lot of ideas that are just sitting there waiting to, you know, are, are being taken, sorry, in various directions which may take off. Great, well, hope so. Thank you very much for, for okay. sharing your memories. Um, well, the list, there's listeners, um, um, they give to a charity, so what, what charity would you like to nominate? I'd like it to go to Action Aid, please. And uh, uh, the final question is that Doctor Who is 50 years old this year. It started the day after the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Uh, and w what is your what is your uh, message to the Doctor Who fans out there? My message to the uh, the fans of Doctor Who are 
don't ever stop being a fan. Try and recruit some more. As a programme, it has a unique place, both in the history of the BBC and the history of television generally, which should be celebrated, enjoyed for as long as possible. I think that's music to our ears. Is and, it? And but I think it's true. I was thinking about it. I was thinking... Yeah. Because I've, I've, I've thought a lot about um, it... And, and whether, in fact, you know, it's going to come to the end of its natural life at some stage after 50 years. And it seems that it's going from strength to strength. Mm. It seems unlikely. I, th- I think the fact that it's now come back and been successful mm. sort of ensures its immortality in the sense yeah. that if it does go away again, it's It'll proof that it can go away yeah. and come back. My favourite Doctor Who of the latest ones, actually, was Christopher Eccleston. I love Christopher Eccleston. I first worked, well, felt with him when... I worked for Tessa Ross and she commissioned Red to make Clocking Off. That was the second time I worked with him. And he, he had a, a key part in one episode with Sarah Lancashire. He was brilliant. Yeah. But the first time I worked with him was in a series I did with Caroline Olton called South of the Border. Yeah. And he had a tiny part as a drug addict. I had about two scenes and he, because the, as a, he bought a bad dose and he died. Um, and the two detectives from South of the Border got involved because he died. And we filmed it over the back there in some old tenements in King's Cross. Turned up, it was a difficult place to film. It was cold and wet and nasty and so on. Didn't have very much to do. Tiny little room, no one could get in. And he produced the most amazing performance. Brilliant, beautiful performance. Not overdone, just just perfect. Just focused him. I really rate him. I'd cast him in anything. Well, that will be music to his ears as well, though I'm not well, sure if he's listening, because no, I'm not sure if Doctor Who is his happiest uh, engagement. No, no. Well, I, well, obviously, because he didn't stay. Yeah. But then, actually, if you think about it, when you're trying to re-establish something that's been out of commission for 20 years, not quite, but... 16, yeah. Yes. And, and what you've got to invest in that to make it work, because it's such a risk, then I could imagine that it was quite traumatic for the people involved there were lots of changes arguments things and Learning he was the job. Yeah. and he was probably he's the actor that has to go out in front of the camera and do it even if five minutes ago he's just been given a new script yeah. they're always the ones who get little time and if you've got big effects that you've got to get right you give the technical people all the time in the world to rehearse it you know writing whatever you don't allow the actors the same luxury they're always you know as a production manager I used to say to um, directors so and so would like to do it again and quite often in my ear there'd be an explosion of what do you mean they want to do it again it was fine and I'm thinking but they're not happy and they'd really like another go and it's kind of their turn to have another go well we covered a lot of ground there we so did all I can say is and thank you very much indeed that's okay I tell you what I didn't tell you don't bother to turn it back on but one of the highlights of my production manager A long one, but worth it, Uh, so I'll be brief, but I need to thank Margot Hayhoe and her bountiful (laughs) bottomless address book for um, getting Anne in contact with me, and of course Anne, who was lovely, and gave some fascinating insights, but also a link to a charity, which is Action Aid, 
which is www.actionaid, all small case, all one word, actionaid.org.uk. Give if you can. There's another Who's Round next time with, I think, one of the most talented behind-the-scenes contributors the show has ever had. Both of us had said, this is crazy. You know, we're trying to create a world, a new world. But what happens is you've got costume designer up in one room at one end of the building and the art department at the other end of the building and you only kind of meet in the studio and this is madness and we should try and work much more closely together so we persuaded them to do that unfortunately Jim within a few weeks became rather unwell so the, that all fell apart because it was a bit of a it had taken a lot of persuading for the BBC department to allow that to happen Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, the fourth Doctor Adventures. Doctor Who, return to Telos. Whoa! Doctor, we must take action. We must save Gerald and the people of Krelos, defeat these Cybermen. There is nothing to fear. The Cybermen are coming. We've got to get out of here. Come on. The Doctor's arrival is imminent. It stopped now. You know, I once double-checked the exact location of the supposed last resting place of the Cybermen. You did? Mm, I did. We have travelled back to when I originally visited Telos. I was travelling with Victoria and Jamie. The warrior? Leela, we've got to get out of here. Once construction of our new cyber army is complete, the Doctor's ingenuity will make that army invincible. Big Finish. We love stories. <laughs>